Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays at this time for the weekly update at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. Good to be with you. Good to have you back. I appreciate that. It seems like you've spent most of February in the Holy Land. In and out of the Holy Land, right? I was uh, traveling for a month, but... uh... Some of it we spent in another country. Always a busy time of year, and thank God you got back. No quarantine necessary, I'm assuming, Baruch Hashem. And no joke, by the way, because we see that the coronavirus is making its way into the Middle East. Both uh, Israel, very concerned about it. You could tell us if you know more about that. And did you notice how some of the enemies of Israel are suffering from coronavirus at this point as well? Uh, there are it is spreading and it's it's everywhere. But the good news is that Israeli scientists said that they will have a vaccine in, in weeks, which is no. really remarkable because it usually takes years to develop. And uh, but but the complications and the difficulties that this generates, uh, people don't truly realize yet. The market is already reflecting it in this what 13 percent loss. But El Al warned that it it, it faces collapse and will fire a thousand people because of the losses from uh, coronavirus. And you multiply that by all the other businesses, uh, friends and people I've spoken to have said that they virtually closing down their offices because they can't get material or parts or things from, from the region. I even read at some point this week that uh, Pesach in Israel will be affected because so much of the plastic wear that people use comes from China. Now it's going to come from Turkey, and that'll be at a more expensive price. And they're also talking about a matzah shortage for Pesach because less people will travel out of Israel this Passover than normally do. So the ripple effect is absolutely unbelievable. In every realm, I mean, it shows the globalization uh, effect. It it will force uh, countries to become more self-reliant. But, you know, there will be, be a lot of businesses that won't survive, so people should think about it and be smiling about it and hope that it ends soon. By the way, uh, one other point. I mean, you you know, I don't, I don't think this is a surprise to you at all. Uh, there's a, especially in our, on our end of the community, our meaning this audience, I'm not necessarily putting you uh, on any end of the community. You're, you're, you represent everybody. But on our end of the community, there's a, a, a tremendous confidence among many people that there will be no change in the White House this coming November. And that certain people on the other side of the aisle who are now in the contest, who are now contestants in the, in the uh, nomination game, uh, that some of those, it would be impossible, many people in our community feel, for them to win an election against President Trump. And I remind everybody that, you know, if, if, if in fact the economy, and it does seem the economy and healthcare are the two biggest issues, and in fact the economy is among the first or second biggest issues of this upcoming campaign, you never know what might happen. And those who, who think that, you know, it's impossible for a socialist or somebody who's anti-Israel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, couldn't possibly ascend to the White House, a situation like this can bring about a major change. So... I'm, I, I, I would, and, and we've seen crazier things happen when it comes to national elections. So there shouldn't be this air of confidence that uh, you know it's impossible for someone other than President Trump to win this upcoming election. You never know what circumstances are going to arise that call, you know, for people to uh, uh, to vote for somebody else. Anyway, just just wanted to mention to those who are a little bit cocky when it comes to uh, how they view the 2020 election that it's certainly not a fait accompli.
Uh, speaking of elections, oh, and by the way, since I started with the U.S. election already, are you amazed at how little foreign policy is getting into these discussions and debates on the Democratic side? It is remarkable that all the foreign policy issues, not just Israel, which gets thrown in usually in a negative context, as uh, we saw in the last debate, an outrageous content, uh, context with the comments that Sanders made uh, with no response from others, um, and uh, but subsequently um, a number of Democratic leaders did and, and including Bloomberg, I think, came out against uh, what he said, uh, labeling both Netanyahu and Israel as a racist uh, country. Uh, but if you look overall, the references are really in passing to the to the issues, and it's much more of a personal rivalry than it is a policy one. And they, everybody, you know, is staking out positions, and when you have a multiple-person campaign, that, I guess, becomes inevitable. Mm-hmm. And whoever is the front-runner of the week gets... The, to be the target of the attacks, so the the um, absence of of substantive debate generally, and particularly on the Middle East, is is well, all international issues uh, is um, is certainly noteworthy. But on the Republican side, you don't have a, a fight, so there's no real debate going on there. It was outrageous that none of those on stage uh, during this uh, exchange that you just cited. Nobody would just say that Israel is the most important ally and friend in the Middle East of the United States. Like, nobody can come up with that, which I would think is the most basic approach that one can use, especially in what we, you know, are used to the conventional Democratic Party. Well, they all did. I mean, they all have said something to that effect, or most did. Uh, I haven't seen what Tom Steyer has to say, but I know that his views are pretty extreme on this this issue. Um but most of them have reiterated the the mantra that Israel is our special ally or Israel democracy, but not about what they will do. And there are some who say they will move the embassy back, some who say they will not move the embassy back, others who have talked about conditioning aid. These are all very disturbing, and so we have a job to do to work with our friends in the Democratic Party to assure that the voices of support are there and especially in advance of the convention, and it's something we are investing a lot of time into, um, because we can't afford to write off significant segments or any segment of the American people when it comes to support for Israel. We want everybody. We want it to be bipartisan. And in this atmosphere of polarization, uh, we can't allow Israel to become the the football between um, individuals or between parties. And overall, Democrats remain, by all polls, supportive of Israel and the U.S.-Israel relationship. And uh, certainly Republicans uh, are. And, uh, you know, we'll see how things flesh out over the next couple of weeks after Super Tuesday, who will remain and what their positions will be. How do you like how the APEC convention became a political football in the Democratic uh, nomination process? Well, I think it's very regrettable. Uh, APEC does tremendous work. And I will be going. I'll be speaking there several times. And the I hope everybody else, any people who have made reservations, should do so today to show that uh, they're not going to succumb to the kind of slanderous remarks and um, the fact that a number of them are either boycotting or just not attending because it is right before Super Tuesday. Uh, I know that uh, I think uh, I've saw that Bloomberg, but I don't know who else will be speaking there. Right. And um, 18,000 people are coming. The attendance, I think, is at a record level or close to it. And the uh, absence also of Israelis because... The next day, or the day of the the Monday of the conference, is the election, so everybody has to be back. And in addition, 
because of the the scare. People are not traveling. Israel's Ministry of Health right. urged people not to travel. So those things all have an impact. Yeah. Again, the unforetold ones. Right. Um, Plus, of course, Yeshiva University men's basketball team has their championship for the Skyline Conference Sunday afternoon. That's also going to cut down on APAC. Everybody knows that. Um, By the way, anyone I've spoken to who lives in Israel or commutes you know, back and forth in the U.S. to Israel. I, I've spoken probably to four or five people this week. They're all going back. I was shocked. They're all going back Sunday in order to make sure to vote on Monday, which, I don't know. I, I, I mean, obviously, it's a very small sample. But I, I was surprised at their enthusiasm to actually change their schedule and head back. I, I was surprised by it, too. I, I felt the same thing, that uh, people are more committed at a time when everybody said they're tired of these elections. It's number three in a year. And right now, it looks like we're going to get the same outcome. Today, the, the polls, I think, are showing they're even up. BB seemed to have picked up somewhat, but now um, I guess it's it's a difference, maybe less than a seat between them. And, and, of course, Israelis are notorious for telling the truth to the pollsters and then lying at the polls, so the outcome is never exactly what what the uh, pollsters and analysts uh, say. But um, I haven't, uh, during in Israel, I met all the top leadership, and nobody was predicting anything right. uh, uh, mostly feeling that the stalemate, and if if it goes to a fourth election, I think it will be really sad. And and uh, you know this undermines democracy. And the fact is that while Israel continues to function and flourish in most regards, not having a government means you can't plan ahead. It means you don't do a budget. A lot of things happen when you don't have a, you know Knesset functioning and. People aren't sure about the, the future, so they don't take jobs or they can't take, undertake long-term projects. What do you tell casual observers, you know, those who don't follow the news from Israel every day, when they ask you how is it possible the Israeli government continues to function under this uh, situation? What do you tell them? Israel's a land of miracles, and this is another one, and that the, you know, democracy it flourishes in Israel. They love elections so much that they've had three in a year. That the um, <laughs> <laughs> that the the um, system is a different system, and one could say that it's. Um, you see, this is the, the the downside of the list system. But I said it's comparable to Britain's, and uh, maybe Israel needs some reform in this regard. But that it is a fully functioning democracy, and in democracies, you know, governments have continuity and pledges and undertakings continue. You see the U.S.-Israel relationship remains very strong in Israel's defense uh, apparatus on all fronts. And I saw it this time firsthand when I went to visit the tunnel in the north that Hezbollah built. And I think we're the first group that was allowed to go and see it. And they took me down all the way. And it's so mind-boggling, and how they were able to detect this, because it's built as a spiral, not as usually tunnels straight across. It's a spiral down and then goes across. Wow. And and they say they may have worked on it for 10 years. <gasps> but when you look at the infrastructure carved in the middle of a mountain, that you're literally going down inside a mountain with uh, air conditioning, with air and electricity and everything in it, and thinking that hundreds of terrorists could have been lined up to enter Israel. They were a day from completion. It, it comes about 100 meters from a road. And you realize that you're looking, and this was all covered by rock, and they were just drilling it out. And and um, it, the, the amount of investment, the tens of millions of dollars that they put into to doing this, and just to kill Israelis, there's no other purpose. 
and this is the sixth one that they uncovered, and they know there are more that haven't uh, just dug on the Lebanese side, not into Israel. And obviously it's something they're monitoring, and they have seismographic measurements and others. But frankly, you can't compare seeing it to what we read and what we hear. It's so overwhelming. Everybody who walked out of there just was shocked. The most pleasant sight was that the Israelis put up a mezuzah on the door <laughs> entrance to the, to the gate. Oh, unbelievable. I, I mean, and I'm sure at some point you're saying to yourself, if only these people were were into life and peace as opposed to into murdering, imagine the positive stuff that could be done with all that money and resources and manpower. I mean, my God, that thought had to have come across. Of course. Crazy. It's absolutely a thought. You know, the, the, the people, Lebanon, Lebanese people, the economy is collapsing. Hezbollah's rule is, is dominant. Iran is now the hegemon because they control Hezbollah. The people... You see the demonstrations that took place this year, and uh, and and the complaints and the polls that show that they they are are, are not happy with the situation. Uh, they can't elect the the real governments that could function, and the the then the designation of all these funds and all this effort, and and the um, inability of Unifil, the unwillingness of Unifil, the unit troops that are stationed along the border, to fulfill the resolution and with twenty seven one, I think it is that requires them to stop this kind of activity along the border, but they can't be blind to it. It's impossible. You can't have all these trucks of rocks and all the stuff that that, uh, was taking place, and you see that they sit in their compound, and they do nothing. Unbelievable. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio, around the world, the web, and the NachumSegal Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Reminder, Monday, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, when the polls close in Israel, our election special will begin here. It'll be live starting at 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Monday with Jake Novak anchoring the entire thing, and he'll have a lot of guests, voices that you're familiar with, other voices that'll be new to this network, uh, all part of it between 3 and likely 7 p.m. before our election special on Monday. By the way, one of my listeners uh, asked me this week to ask you, and I, uh, you know, you, you obviously are very familiar with any high-profile senator. You've de- you've dealt with all the senators, but especially those who are there for so many years and have made a real name for themselves. People ask, has Bernie Sanders always been like this? Now, I'm not sure if they mean in his personality or what we perceive to be anti-Israel. I, I mean, have you ever had a pro-Israel conversation with him? No, and you know that's part of the show that you know about boycotting APAC. He never went to APAC conferences, and um, and he's never been a, a supporter per se. You know, one of the right. courageous voices in the Senate. So I think I think that record is pretty consistent. And and it just it's so you know. It- I don't know. Maybe it's frustrating because you know he's a New York Jew. He's a New York Jew. You would think that he would know better, frankly. And I am I am starting to fear. And I don't know. After APAC, you could tell me if I'm if I'm right or wrong to fear it. I, you know, we always talk about congressional support. Thank God, the congressional support for Israel is the way it has been for decades at this point, right? You would say certainly for decades right. and has always been solid. I don't know. I'm I'm getting I'm getting a um a feeling. Uh, I don't want to say it's eroding or, you know, say something that, that's happening drastically, but I, but I think we're taking it for granted too often and that we have to, on a grassroots level all across the country, really have to shore up what, what has been solid support, but we don't realize how quickly we could lose it. I agree completely. It's it's not something we can take for granted. There is erosion, there's no doubt, in certain, in certain segments. Um, but overall, Congress still remains supportive. The American people still 
more than two-thirds support the U.S.'s relationship and a strong relationship with Israel, and in some sectors, support has grown. Um, but we have to, and we are, we're reaching out to every ethnic group, to Asian Americans, Black Americans, Hispanic Americans, uh, and there is much more support there, the grassroots in some of those sectors, than people know. You know, there's a large evangelical Hispanic community that is very pro-Israel, and they're, they're, we find that people are supportive. They want to find answers. They want to see how they can help and assure this that the relationship continue. There are those voices that get all the attention, that suck all the energy out, right. and they're a minority, but they're given the the the, the base, and they they therefore build on that and exploit it. You see the amount of money that some of them have raised, though they've done nothing in Congress, and they are just disruptive voices. But but then, you know, as one leader in Congress says, said to us, there are 54 freshmen, and four of them get all the attention. Yeah. The 50 who are really supportive and work day-to-day get very little attention. So these are things that we try to do. But everybody, invite your member of Congress, no matter how committed you think they are. Invite them. Talk to them. Discuss issues with them. Put them on the record on key issues that we have on BDS, on U.S.'s relationship with Jerusalem, all of the issues that you care about. And, um, and and people should get involved in the campaigns. Look at your local campaign. Democracy demands involvement. That's what they ask of us. And too many people just take it for granted. Some of them don't even go to vote. Everybody should be registered, and everybody has to turn out. You can't have a higher stake than what we see these days. And, and if people don't get it now, I don't know when they will. And the pressure, with the media pressure, especially the media loves those that you were referring to. Uh, you know, the ones who are bombarded. And promote them. And promote them. And, and that pressure that members of Congress then feel when the media goes after them on these issues, they don't always, they don't always have the ability or, or sometimes even the information to really stay solid in their support for Israel, and they could cave in. So we can't take that for granted. Uh, all right, tell us about uh, Israeli, uh, tell us about alleged Israeli uh, strikes in Syria over the last 48 hours. Uh, Israel... Uh, actually acknowledged some rates this past week, but the, the Israel is, is uh, responding to the continuing Iranian aggression, moving weapons, uh, higher, higher grade weapons, uh, precision guided missiles is the big issue, which are, are being sent then on to Hezbollah and uh, and stationed in <coughs> sorry <coughs> in uh, in Syria itself. Uh, to provide to militias, we see a lot of developments there with the Turkey and, and uh, Turkish soldiers being killed by Russian or pro-Assad um, troops uh, and planes. Um, the, in the fight between Iran and, and uh, Russia, because you see that there's no response to Israel's actions, no limitations being placed on it. There are periodic warnings, but the fact is that Israel hit uh, major sites of, of uh, Iran. And you don't see any aircraft missiles or anything else being fired because it's in, I think, the interests of Assad, of Russia, of all the parties, to have to limit Iran's continuing um, activities and and increased activities there, because they're looking for the for the Shiite crescent to be fulfilled, and it's they've made a lot of progress, meaning from Iran through Iraq, through Syria, through Lebanon to the Mediterranean. As well as in other areas, and uh, aggression in in the Persian Gulf area. And when we were there in the Gulf, you hear firsthand about how extensive it is. What they're doing with the Houthis, what they're doing on the seas, what their the bases they built, the the expansion of their military capacity. Do you sense the fear of Iran when you're there? Hundred percent. 
And they're open about it, meaning the governments are openly discussing it with you. They openly talk about throughout the region, talk about the enemy, and everybody knows it means Iran. Increasingly concerned about Turkey, which is also acting in an aggressive way, often paralleling the Iranians. But um, there's no love lost really between them, even though they make partnerships now out of convenience, and even with the Russians. But you see how quickly it broke down in Syria. And Turkey is threatening, you know, to release to stop the immigrants from flowing into Europe. Uh, also talking about taking more aggressive military action. So it's a very volatile situation. And the one stable element there is that Israel is is taking out the, uh, where they can find it. And as they know it, the, the threats that um, uh, uh, the Iranians are posing. And this is some also acknowledged throughout the region. And it's interesting, not not only that the the failure to respond to it, um, but the the um, the support that that seems to have. Israel can't afford to do anything less. It's it's the seriousness, and we were on the border. You look down, you you know what is happening, and the, the other countries in the region are applauding them for it. Right. Well, I get that that there's no choice, but it just always seems that Israel is much more aggressive recently. I, I think there was a time when it seemed they were much more hesitant to strike in Syria. Well, they wouldn't say it publicly, even though they carried out hundreds of raids before there was any public acknowledgement. Uh, and the point was not to, you know, to provoke a response that it, as long as these were mysterious strikes emanating from some force, you know, out of, out of a space force, but now Israel acknowledges, and whether it's for political or other reasons that some allege, uh, I think it's also a message that they're sending by acknowledging the raids and saying, look, this is what's going to, the price you're going to pay if you continue. Uh, so when you're in the Gulf region and you're having these meetings, as you did during February, as you described to us, I mean, are, are you basic, are you essentially coming out and telling these leaders, you know, the stronger your relationship with Israel, the safer you're going to be? That that, that, that is the, the answer, that is the one answer for the future of your country is just establish as, as peaceful and as strong a relation with Israel as possible? Well, I can tell you that throughout the year, that message is not one we have to give because it's one we get where they look to to be able to strengthen the ties on all levels. I mean, as one leader said, Israel drives innovation in the region, Israel's expertise, Israel's things, all things that we need, and, and there's so much to be gained. Obviously, there, there's still the concern over the Palestinian issue, so they say that that's like an obstacle to public acknowledgement, but frankly, they're already moving ahead all the time. The fact that Israel will have a, a pavilion in in uh, Dubai 2020, a public that Israeli racing team was, I think, in, in the UAE this this past week. Uh, so many things, and and frankly, you know, people are saying, well, there's no, they don't give uh, countries that don't admit Israelis, and at the airport you hear Hebrew being spoken. Wow. So it's and 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 I have to tell you that um, where we were when we were in Saudi Arabia, we had kosher food the whole week. We fresh kosher food made. And uh, many accommodations to us that um, were unthinkable in the past. And the the overall attitude, I think, is gradually moving. Look, the the public support, the public feeling towards Israel is still negative in most countries, from Morocco to Egypt inclusive, and uh, to the Gulf. But it's changing. You get front-page editorials about uh, it's time to change our attitude to Israel. And the attitude of the leaders is... Across the board, 
we paid such a heavy price. They don't appreciate it, meaning the Palestinians, the kleptocracy. They steal everything. There's no progress. And that our people are tired of it. They're tired of investing. And, in fact, I saw a poll of Palestinians that said no more pay to slay. You know, they should get whatever welfare benefits everybody gets. Right. But no more special treatment, no more. And, and a, another interesting um, uh, finding, just because it's not the kind of thing that ever gets attention, is that uh, most of them want to see a Palestinian state from the river to the sea. But when they ask them, I think 40 percent, a third of West Bank and about 40 percent of people in Gaza said, yeah, but we don't want to be part of the PA or under Hamas. We better we be part of Israel. <laughs> so, I mean, again, I don't see how people, I mean, the press hardly touches <laughs> so they're, on that. So they're for the existence of the Palestinian state. They just don't want to be in the Palestinian state. Right. <laughs> but but it was like 70 percent stop, said stop the special payments. So, you know, the, the message is getting through to, to a lot of the people um but unfortunately they still are poisoned and we saw changes in textbooks we saw countries telling us how that they are working to to review all the textbooks i mean it's not something that people necessarily know leaders know uh, often what what is happening will be just published in a country and nothing to do with it or by order of other countries unbelievable well the countries can decide if they want to uh, use the israeli coronavirus uh, vaccine you know that's uh their choice. Yeah, that's their choice. And uh, I would assume Israel would offer it to everybody, including their enemies, frankly, because that's the way Israel is usually when it comes to these things. Um, and now about the uh, the South, because we know that rockets were raining down on Israelis in the hundreds uh, this week uh, from the Gaza region. What could you tell us about that? Well, clearly Hamas can't control Pidge, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which gets it's the second most powerful group in gets the support, obviously, from Iran, as does Hamas, but um, it's much greater, the, the foremost agent of Iran. And um, you know that the um, they fear about the, what will happen to their own regime. Hamas doesn't want a war uh, because they know that it'll, the price will be heavy for them as well and that the... Um, the the uh, situation there of, of the rockets is intolerable, and the balloons, which people don't don't seem to know, but if you contrast what's happening there with the unemployment, with the the deprivations that people have, and only because of their own um, their own leadership and the uh, tendencies of and, and the exploitation of the population and the admissions, you know, that the, the the march for whatever return was only to to divert attention away from their their um, the, the governments and the focus of the people on the government, but. We see that Hamas is unable to really control them, uh, even uh, with the, the missile launches, and maybe afraid to, to have an all-out confrontation. Israel has certainly has shown a lot of patience, but, you know, that can't continue inevitably. If people in Road, all these places, have 15 mm-hmm. seconds to get to their, to their shelters. Their resilience is beyond belief. In, in every instance, but you know, when their kids wake up in the morning, go out in the backyard to play, and there's a balloon, colorful balloons and everything, and attached to it is an IED or a, other explosive devices or rockets, and um, these pose real risks, and the the um, economic deterioration in Gaza uh, will feed the more extreme uh, elements, but the, so clearly Hamas is not in control. Egypt, obviously, is playing a role there, trying to help. Israel went to Qatar to get more money because their fear of the economic collapse would, would uh, lead to greater uh, um, 
difficulties. But it, it, but at the same time, there was an amazing story about a, a village called um, Araba. It's twenty six thousand people in in the Galil, and they have four hundred physicians. It's the highest physician rate in the world, mm. and I think more than half of them are women. And they talk about the economic conditions and benefits that they uh, derive. These are Israeli Arabs living in the Zionist state. And it's a story, again, that you know, no one will, will really publish or talk about. But if they, the Palestinians look at this and they say, hey, you know, this is the option for us uh, if we would make peace with Israel. But that story doesn't get through. In the textbooks that we see, we just saw a report that Britain had given 100 million pounds uh, through UNRWA, through other sources, to publish these Palestinian texts, which are so horrific and and are not reformed and don't change. So it's um, you know it's up to the European governments to start putting pressure on to stop funding publications and the incitement and to get a message through to the PA, which is still backing BDS and still promoting a lot of the hate sites and um, use of the uh, social media to promote anti-Semitism as well as anti-Israel activities. But the European countries don't get it. Saudi Arabia gets it, but the European countries don't get it. Listen, is... if a fifth of people in Europe, in a poll of, of I think, 16,000 people, one-fifth said that there's a secret cabal of Jews that is running the world, and... Um, and another fifth that said that uh, Israel exploits the Holocaust for their own benefit, the Jews exploited. This is, uh, I mean, what more evidence do you need about the, the hatred, the, the seeds that have been sown in Europe, and that uh, 80 years after the Shoah, or 75 years, that the, you know, the, the, it remains in, in this strong vein of hatred and anti-Semitism. It's manifest in these uh, carnivals in, in Spain and in Belgium, where they use openly, openly blatant anti-Semitic um, uh, images and floats that uh, only can stoke hatred and, and anti-Semitism. Uh, we see that the poison still runs strong in, in Europe. We saw Naftali Bennett this week uh, said he's building 1,800 new homes. Now, those, those are usually announcements made by the prime minister. Am I right about that? Like, was he was he overstepping on this one in terms of his uh, position, I assume, because, uh, you know, the election day is coming up Monday? Before elections, there's no overstepping. <laughs> Good point. Good point. <laughs> no, uh, no, but it's, uh, but defense minister, when Netanyahu was defense minister, also he did make some announcements, and certainly in the past... And because this is a, uh, they need military permission, I think, for the housing constructions in that in those areas. But clearly, you know, everybody will use every opportunity to get a positive media and build up their bases and attract the votes. So, I think that's what Bennett was doing too. And the question is, if BB in the next few days can convince enough right wingers that he's the man and that they don't go to the smaller parties. You know, what's interesting, by the way, and I'm sure everyone's going to analyze this a million times. Uh, likely, if it, I mean, assuming it happens again. Uh, everyone suspected after the first election people would leave the smaller parties, voters would leave the smaller parties and gravitate toward the larger ones just because of the you know mentality that we need, you know, we need a majority government. We need uh, a government that can function, et cetera. And just the opposite happened, of course, uh, if you look at the results between the first, second, and third elections. And I guess that's the real prediction. That's the real prediction when it comes to Monday. Is that going to happen again? People will stick with these, you know, uh, niche parties, so to speak, or will they gravitate to the two larger parties and give them, 
you know, the backbone and the numbers they need in order to form a government. I think that's what it really comes down to. It does, and but, you know, we have no right to tell people how they should vote. Right. They should vote responsibly here, too. And, um, and, but, you know, Israel, again, it's much more polarized and politicized, and people identify by party much more than they did in the United States. It's happening here, too, where we see the partisanship and the, some of the extremist views and, and the, uh, the rallies and the atmospheres that is being created. Oh, yes. Um, but, um, you know, we hope that uh, wisdom prevails and people will act responsibly, first by voting, and that's a message to all of us here. Register now. Make sure you vote and, and you see how important uh, who gets elected is, yeah. and, and a few votes in every race, and congressional races that are very important to us, and um, let alone the presidential, the national uh, races. The challenges that we talk about each week, uh, it's only a, a small percentage of, of what is happening. When we see, you know, yesterday Governor Cuomo uh, put forward a very far-sighted, and I have to compliment his leadership on the issue of anti-Semitism, pretty consistent over these past year or more. Uh, but he came up with this comprehensive uh, bill that addresses education, the security for institutions, um, accountability, um, and uh, an annual day of action to combat anti-Semitism, but most importantly, designating hate crimes as domestic terrorism acts under certain circumstances. Uh, but the message is what's important, and increasing the amount of money for uh, and for religious institutions to be able to be eligible to get the money for, for um, uh, creating... Um, um, security devices and to protect themselves against uh, hate crimes and expanding the Holocaust Museum. That's kind of what, what we have to do is we have to take practical steps, lay it out, and, and address what is happening in our society today. Our campuses are hostile, um, m- many of them, including New York City, and we have lawsuits at Columbia, NYU, elsewhere, Syracuse, a lot of incidents over the last uh, couple of weeks. I mean, it's raging across it, and people should not take it for granted. The first thing they have to do is register, vote, and make a commitment, get involved in the races, see who's running, make your voice heard. It, it was never more important, and there's so much at stake. If we learned the lessons, if never again means something, this is how you give voice to it. Well said. Uh, finally, when you made your way up north, did you see a full Kinneret? Wow. You cannot imagine... For those who visited the the Galilee and to see the Kinneret, it's unbelievable. It's within a few meters of being full. It means they're going to have to release water towards the Dead Sea. But a lot of the areas where people used to be able to walk out, it's all covered. It's literally up to the roads that you can see the uh, the water. And it was raining heavy the last uh, couple of days also. Uh, so the uh, when, when we were there, uh, so... And when the snow melts, as you know, a lot of it comes into Kinneret. Um, so, yes, it's it's quite a remarkable sight as you go up north. But it, not only there, there, the Jordan, all of the little tributaries, everything is running fast and full. Unbelievable. And uh, it's, it's a what beautiful a sight. And especially, you know, in the Negev, after you have often, unfortunately, very dangerous flash floods, because water accumulates in the mountains and then can come rushing down. It can knock over a bus. It can, it's taking people's lives. And uh, but uh, often you have the colonial, you have the beautiful flowers that that come out for a period of time, and also you see that the the Dead Sea is uh, has expanded and filled a lot of the areas 
that were dried, and you could see the salt pillars and everything. Uh, um, now you don't see it. Unbelievable. And uh. we should also note, by the way, what Russia is doing, the, the test of the hypersonic missiles, again, getting very little attention. I mean, we're seeing so many things that are escalating uh, that require people's attention and people's uh, focus and the the need for to stay informed, to listen to, to your programs through the week, to listen to, to go to reliable sources, the dailyalert.org or World Jewish World Review, all these sources. People have to stay informed and to, and to be able to respond effectively. Malcolm, I thank you. Enjoy uh, APAC, and we look forward to speaking again next week. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Friday, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time here at JM in the AM.